Good morning. If you have your Bible this morning, we will be in Psalm 41. If you do not have a Bible, the blue Bibles in the pew in front of you, it should be, should be on page 518. This summer, we have been walking through the Psalms. This is not the first summer we've done this. This is actually a a repeat. We do this in the summers commonly. And this summer, or this morning at least, we get to finish the first book of the Psalter. That's, that's an accomplishment. I think it's an accomplishment. That's a big thing. We're a fifth of the way there or so. <clears throat> but anyway, this morning we are going to find ourselves in Psalm 41. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while he, his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are many things in this life that scares us, that we fear, that we avoid. These things, we try to remove them from us. We try not to be associated with them. Sometimes we do everything we can to run from them or to counteract them. Whatever these fears are, they control us. But I think that above all these fears, the most universally feared and despised and looked down thing is weakness. Weakness. Now think about it. We hate feeling weak. 
whether it's physical weakness or financial weakness or emotional weakness or intellectual weakness or relational weakness. We hate feeling weak. We spend hours in the gym. We spend thousands on diets and cosmetics. We work long hours and we hoard up our treasures. We refuse to be vulnerable with one another and let people know our fears and feelings. Let them know our weaknesses. We act like we know everything, or maybe even if we don't know, we'll say, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about, because we don't want to be weak. We mask the tensions in our relationships by saying everything's okay. Yeah, I had a great week. We're good, how are you? We do not like weakness. We're anemic to it. I find myself doing some of these things. And if we're honest, if you're honest, I think you would say you find yourself doing these things as well. It's in us to not like to feel weak, to not like to see weakness, and sometimes to not be around others who are weak. We are averse to weakness, but our God is not. He does not hate weakness. He welcomes weakness. He welcomes the weakest, the lost, the broken, and the hurting, and he gives them hope, healing, and joy. Our God welcomes the weak to himself. And this morning in Psalm 41, we read of David's weakness, his brokenness, and his fears. We read of a man who is on his sickbed dying, a man who's been betrayed and is without any friend or any hope of an ally. We read of a man who's surrounded by his enemies and unable to defend himself. But in all of this, what we see is we see a God who welcomes him, heals him, and brings him near. So in this psalm, we see a man who is weak, broken, and in fear, and he's met by a God who welcomes him, heals him, and brings him near. That is what Psalm 41 shows us, and that is what we need to take home, what we need to rest upon and remember, is that when we are broken, when we are weak, and when we are in fear, we're met by the God who welcomes us, heals us, and brings us near. That's the message of Psalm 41 this morning. To see this, what we're going to do is we're going to break this psalm into three parts, three sections. First, God's promise to the weak in verses 1 through 3. Second, a plea from the weak in verses 4 through 10. And then finally, God's deliverance of the weak in verses 11 through 13. God's promise to the weak, a plea from the weak, and God's deliverance of the weak. Now, I just want to give you a caveat. I think I do this most times, but just so you know, one section will be longer than the others. It will be the middle one. I think I have the right to do that because it's the most verses, but it will be the majority of the morning. So don't, don't become nervous <laughs> when we're still not done with the middle section. All right, so... Let's look back at the text, and let's start by looking at God's promise to the weak. So David begins, he begins by writing a proverbial statement, a beatitude. 
He says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In saying this, he's literally writing, happy or joy, a state of joy is considering the poor or the weak. He's starting by reminding the reader and himself that there is happiness and joy in considering the weak around oneself. Now, why is that? Why is there joy found when we consider the weak? Well, two reasons. First, because considering the poor, considering the weak, means we deal wisely with the weak. Not disregarding them, not neglecting them, but acting in a way that is right and necessary for those in need. That's one of the, the meanings of this word, consider. And this brings to mind the words of Christ himself, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who show mercy are the ones who will receive mercy. Now note, he doesn't say that those who show mercy will get their due reward, that they will merit mercy, because mercy cannot be merited. It literally means unearned favor, undeserved favor. It can't be earned. But instead, showing mercy is evidence that one has and will receive mercy. It's the posture and practice of those who have been saved, not by their works done in righteousness, but by the mercy of God. Those who have received mercy will show mercy. And so there's happiness in this because you get to give what you have received. You get to see what you have been shown. It is like when you're riding in a car, right? You're in a car with a family or friends or whoever you ride around in cars with. I hope it's family or friends. I hope you're not riding around cars with other people. Um, anyway, you're riding in a car and you see this amazing sunset and just colors galore. There's pinks and purples and oranges and it's just bright and brilliant and beautiful. You just sit there silently, quietly and keep it to yourself. No, you say, look at that sunset. Look at that. You point everyone to it. And it brings you joy. It brings you more joy, not just because you get to see it and experience it, but because you get to share it. That's one sense that David's talking about why it's happy or blessed is the one who's considering the poor or the weak. The second reason is because considering the poor means you understand and you learn from the poor and the weak. I actually think that might be what David has more directly in mind here. When you look upon the weak and those who are in need, and you begin to understand something, you begin to learn something, and what you learn is the truth of the promises of God to those who are in need, which is exactly where David goes next. He says, blessed are those who consider the poor, or happy is considering the weak, starting in verse 1, the second line. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. These promises are to the weak. 
whether they're to the one considering the weak or the weak man himself in this text, the promises require that the one that receives them is in need, a weak person who needs to be delivered, who needs to be sustained, who needs to be not given up to the will of his enemies, who needs to be restored to the weak. God makes these promises to the weak. And so, in one sense, there is joy in considering the poor because you get to be the channel through which God's mercy is shown to people, to the weak. But at the same time, there's joy in considering in the sense of understanding the poor because you're a firsthand witness of the truth of God's mercy to his people. You get to see and be reminded of his promises to the weak. And oh, how wonderful are his promises. Let's look at these promises. They truly should instill in us joy and happiness when we see them. Let's look at them. In these verses, what we see is the Lord promises deliverance, protection, and sustenance. Or he, he promises to deliver, to protect, and sustain the weak. So first, the first promise, he says, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. So imagine, imagine a shepherd, a shepherd whose lamb has strayed away from the flock and is tired and weak and cannot get home. It is dark and cold. Maybe it's a little hoof stuck in some brambles and now it's, not, it's hurting. What's the shepherd do in this scenario? The shepherd goes out and seeks. The shepherd stoops low and lifts. He brings the lamb close and under his cloak to keep it warm, and he delivers it all the way home. The word here, delivers him, is giving us that picture. Isaiah uses it in Isaiah 46 when he says, Yahweh says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth and carried from the womb. Here's the promise. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. It's the same word for deliver. He will carry his people all the way home. He will save them and deliver them back to safety. So this promise is to the weak and weary in need of a shepherd. The Lord promises to deliver you safely home. That's the first promise. The second promise, the Lord promises to protect the weak. David writes, the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. And later he'll say, you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. This is a protection from those who want to disregard and disadvantage and destroy the weak. And as we'll see in a second, this is a promise that David really needed to know and really needed to trust, that the Lord protects the weak. Third, the Lord promises to sustain the weak. Look at verse 3. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. David's drawing from the image of a nurse here. Think of a nurse who comes in and watches you, who checks your vitals, who ensures you're comfortable and healthy, who cares for you tenderly yet firmly, as they ought to sometimes. 
but who cares for you, turning your bed. Restoring means turning your bed, caring for you minute by minute. The Lord is that kind of caregiver to his weak people. He's a nurse that will sustain you and keep you and watch you all the way to the end. These are God's promises to the weak, friends. These three promises to deliver, to protect, and to sustain. And so, a question we should ask in the craziness of life, in the constant need of deliverance, protection, and sustaining, do we know these promises to be true? And I don't mean do we know them intellectually or cognitively, but do we not do, not do we know of them, but do we know them? Do we rest upon these promises? Do you know the God that know the God that welcomes who are weak and strengthens those who are weak and comforts those who are weak? Friends, Jesus tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's only as the poor and weak that we actually receive the mercy of God. And for those who need it, it's available and available in abundance. So first of all, do we know it? Second of all, do we welcome it? Do we welcome the weak? Do I welcome the weak? That's a question we should ask ourselves. We should consider the poor and we should be a refuge for the brokenhearted and not push away the weak and those in tears, but draw them near and weep with those who weep just as we want to rejoice with those who rejoice. We should be a refuge and a stronghold for those who have failed and are hurting, we sh- which means we should share our own hurting and our own weaknesses to invite others to do the same. And what happens when we do that, when we see others' weaknesses and when we say our weaknesses, we get to see and share in the mercy of God in our lives and others. We get to be channels for the weak to be comforted, and we get to receive the mercy through others' words. The balm of the prayers of the people of God is seen and heard whenever our weaknesses are on full display, because God is using his people to comfort his people. Okay, we should welcome the weak. That's the first section. David begins by reminding himself, reminding us as we read these first three verses of the Lord's promise to deliver, to protect, and to sustain the weak. But now, what do we do with these promises? What does David do with these promises? He pleads to know and to experience them. Look back at verses 4 through 10 with me, and let's see a plea from the weak. As for me... I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him, 
he will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. In this section, David pleads for mercy because he's considered the poor, because he's seen and he knows the promises of God to deliver, protect, and sustain. So he asks for all of those promises to be true of himself where he is. He comes to the Lord and pleads for mercy. So he begins his first plea. He says, O Lord, be gracious to me. Now, why does he plead for grace? Because he's sinned. His plea is not grace to get out of the situation. The first plea, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Throughout this stanza, we see that David is clearly very ill and on his sickbed, and he's seemingly on the edge of death. He is very sick, by all means. And we should note, this is not the first time David's associated his sickness with his sin, or his need for healing with his need for forgiveness. And so once again, we do need to see that there's a reality here that the Bible associates some times of illness as consequences for sin. Some times, not types. This does not mean that every cold we have is a result of a particular sin, and it also doesn't mean that a particular illness is associated with a particular sin. We need to be careful of those fallacies. But what this means is that there are serious earthly consequences for sin, and that our sin ought to be our primary concern and our pleas before the Lord. You may have a note in your Bible where it explains that it says, heal me is literally heal my soul. Heal my soul. David's certainly concerned with his situation and his physical restoration, but his first plea and his cause for a plea is the wickedness that he knows to be true within himself and his need for forgiveness. His prayer is for spiritual weakness, or out of spiritual weakness first, for mercy and grace for his sin. So before we go through the rest of his plea and the rest of his weakness, a question, another question we can ask ourselves, do I pray like this? Does this characterize my prayer? Do true, earnest pleas for mercy characterize my prayers? David's first plea is about his soul being healed, for he has sinned. There's an eternal weight to his prayer that ought to characterize all the prayers of the people of God. We pray for God's mercy to be known, seen, and experienced as hearts are healed through whatever other healing the Lord does. So pray for temporal relief unto the purpose of hearts and souls being healed by the Lord. Looking back at the text, though, David continues. He begins with his plea. His plea is because he has sinned. He needs healing. But he goes on and shows that it's not just that he's sick. It's that he's vulnerable. And everyone around him knows it. 
and they're using it to plan to take advantage of him. Look at David's situation in verses five to nine. I'm not gonna read them again, but I'm gonna kind of jump through them, so keep your eyes on the text. David's enemies speak malice. They ask, when will he die and perish? When they actually come see him, instead of sincerity and compassion, like maybe someone who's sick would like to have, instead they come to investigate how long he's going to live. They're looking around wondering, how much longer is this going to take? And notice, it isn't just one person. This is a group. Verse 7 says, they whisper together and they imagine the worst. The word for whisper sounds like the hissing of a snake. They hiss. They're like vipers, waiting, looking for his weakness, planning his destruction. Now, friends, imagine if you were deathly ill, if you were sick, and you're lying in a hospital bed. People come to see you. They bring you some nice Hallmark cards, maybe some chocolates, because that always makes you feel better. Bring you some balloons, some flowers, put on a smile, and tell you, I hope you are doing okay. But as soon as they get out to the hall, The truth comes out. In the room, they put on a show. But in the hall, they just say, I wish he'd just die already. When's this guy going to die? How long will this take? Not only do they talk about wishing you were dead, they hope for it. And the destruction of your name which means they hope that no one grieves or cares or misses you at all. You see them face to face and they smile and tell you, I hope you're okay. This is the truth of their heart. It's a feeling of helplessness and weakness, of not having an ally, no one who genuinely cares for you or hears you or is in your corner or loves you or supports you. That's where David finds himself. That's the picture he's painting. And it's not only his enemies. Verse 9 is the deepest strike that we see here. It's his own loved one. Listen to his pain in verse 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, we don't know who exactly this is. I would speculate, many speculate, it's Ahithophel, which if you're familiar with your second Samuel, then you would know Ahithophel was a counselor of God, or of David, sorry, of David, a trusted counselor of David. And when David's conniving, sneaky son, Absalom, rises up and gets out of town, to raise up an army to overtake David, he calls Ahithophel, and he answers. He comes. He betrays. This is a man, whether it's Ahithophel or not, it's a man who undoubtedly ate at David's table, an intimate relationship, who had been a trusted confidant of David, a battle-tested friend. And now this man, he not only is like apathetic, he's not just distant, He's not just leaving him to go somewhere else. 
He's lifting his heel against David to strike him with the dead blow, death blow, crushing him beneath his foot. That's where David is. We just need to see that pain. He is weak, broken, and fearful. And as we read these words, we can hear the, own, the words of our own hearts as well. Some of us know what it feels like to be surrounded by enemies, whether that's coworkers, maybe family members. We know what it feels like to not be surrounded with a loving embrace, but to be surrounded by snakes hissing about us. Many of us, some of us actually, know of the pain of betrayal in a very acute way. You know it in a very personal sense. Maybe you were betrayed by a parent, or a spouse, or a child, a friend, someone whom you had been trusted to, who you trusted yourself to, and they betrayed you. We know the pain of David. And at the same time, we can hear ourselves, not as David, but as the hissing snakes around David as well. We've been those who are apathetic or worse about the pain of others. We've been the betrayer of trust and the cause for pain deep in the hearts of those who we love. And so we, like David, say, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. The psalm is very real, and it's, it gives us a picture of our hearts in both of those times. And so, where do we look? Where does David look? Verse 10, but you, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. David looks to the one who he knows cares for, hears, and heals the weak. The one who doesn't take advantage of the weak, the one who doesn't push away the begging hand, but the one who welcomes you when you are in your weakest and vilest place. He knows that the Lord will deliver him, that the Lord will protect him, and that the Lord will sustain him. And so he calls upon the Lord to raise him up, literally get me out of my sick bed and put him back as king so he can establish the justice that the king of Israel was supposed to establish. He looks to the Lord, to his promise. Whenever the pain of his heart is crying out, he looks to the Lord. And whenever the weight of his guilt is pressing him down, he looks to the Lord. He looks to the Lord for mercy. And so for all of us, the weak, the betrayer, and the betrayed, the weakest, the vilest, and the poor, there is one hope we can look to this morning and every moment. We can look to the Lord. And not in an abstract sense, not in an impersonal sense, but we can look to the Lord Jesus Christ the great son of David who walked this same road and overcame it and now gives to us the mercy we need while we're still on it. See, the path that David's walking here where he needs mercy is the same path that Jesus took in order to give us mercy. Through Jesus' entire life, his enemies plotted or tried to kill him. Upon his birth, Herod kills all the babies in Israel. 
that should be his age. Later on, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they plot together. Two people who hate each other plot together to kill him. And ultimately, the high priest, they plot to capture him and kill him. People didn't just want him to die. They didn't just want his name to perish. They wanted to do it. And his enemies, they hissed. They hissed together, plotting to destroy him. And the greatest one of them all hissed, beginning in the garden, all the way up to his temptation. The great serpent, he hissed lies and plotted once and for all to destroy the seed of the woman. And Jesus was betrayed by his own disciple. He cites Psalm 41, saying, the one whom I give bread to will betray me. He knew the deep betrayal of not just Judas, but then all of the disciples on that night. He knows the despair of being surrounded by enemies. He knows of the pain of betrayal. He was put to death, he was mocked, he was beaten, and he was shamed, and he was buried. It looked like the heel of his enemy had come down. But you, O oh Lord, but you, O oh Lord, the Lord rose from the grave. He was not crushed by the heel, but he crushed his enemy by his heel. And he overcame death, sin, and Satan. He conquered his enemy. He was raised up, established as the right king, so that now he will establish justice. He will repay the evil. He will establish perfect justice. And he says to you who are weak, he says, come to me. That's who Jesus is. This is the story of Jesus. This is a song of Jesus. He walked this path in which we need mercy so that he can give you mercy. The king who is set high and establishes justice welcomes you and says, come to me. We can receive mercy when we need our souls to be healed. We can receive mercy when we need comfort because of the pain we have endured. We can receive mercy when we need to be delivered home because our good shepherd, who knows us by our name and whose voice our hearts know, comes for us and carries us home. We can receive mercy as he protects us as the roaring lion of Judah who defeated the great enemy and for, will once and for all defeat sin and death when he returns. And we can receive mercy to sustain us as he has promised that he will surely bring to completion the good work in which he has begun in us. So, Christian, there is no shame in weakness. Instead, there's a welcome. There's no pushing away the weak. There's no being pushed away because of your weakness. There is a drawing near by your Savior who went through the ultimate weakness to give you mercy in yours. His weakness, his mercy overcomes your weakness. Recall the promises of God. See them worked out in Christ and rest upon them, knowing that when you are weak, broken, and in fear, your God welcomes you, heals you, and brings you near. And to you who know you need this, but also know you don't have it, the message I hope has been clear. There's no need to clean up to buck up, to straighten up, the message of the Savior is, come ye sinners, poor and needy, 
weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Your sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Friend, his mercy is more. Receive his mercy by trusting upon him and his promises, turning from whatever hope you place your hope, whatever place you put your hope, and look to him who will truly deliver you, sustain you, and protect you, shown to you through his life, death, and resurrection. Find rest upon the mercy of God. To this point, we have worked through the first majority of this psalm. We have seen God's promise to the weak. We've seen how he promises those who, his people who cannot, he will deliver you, protect you, and sustain you. And then we've heard the cries of David, and really what we've heard is we've heard the cries of our own heart. Our cries for healing that our hearts need because we have sinned, and the cries of comfort and mercy that we need because of the pain and suffering that we have endured. Now, let's turn to the last section. God's deliverance of the weak. So following David's plea for mercy, we read of his deliverance and his response. Look at verses 11 to 13. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity, and you have set me in, the present, in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So David has recalled the promises of God, he's pled for mercy, and now he's going to taste and celebrate the deliverance of God. In these last few verses, there's three truths we need to get. First, David's deliverance is from the Lord. David's deliverance leads to the Lord. And David's deliverance ends with the praise of the Lord. So we see that David's deliverance is from the Lord. Because David's enemies are now overcome. He's on his sickbed. He's dying. Remember that. So the reason his enemies do not shout over him is not because of him, but it's because the Lord has heard his plea for mercy and raised him up. As with most laments, there is a transition from lamenting the pain that the author, typically David, is in, and then all of a sudden praise, because it's a recognition that the Lord has delivered the one who's crying out. That's what David's showing us here. Nothing's changed, oh, but everything has changed. And David explains in verse 12, the Lord is the one who upheld me in my integrity, literally in my integrity, not because of my integrity. It's not that his integrity is worthless. We, we had a sermon on integrity. It's very important. David highlights it throughout. But in this case, he's showing that he has remained in his integrity because the Lord has upheld him in it. He has given him the strength to hold on to the promises of the Lord, to depend upon the promises of the Lord, and to act in accord with those promises. David's deliverance is from 
the Lord. And so then, not only is it deliverance from the Lord, it leads to the Lord, to the presence of the Lord. It's the ultimate promise of all of God's deliverance. It's not always that we'll be delivered from what we face today. And so if that's what we're taking away, that's not. David's highlighting that right here. It's not that it's you deliver me right now, this moment, every day, every time. It's that you will deliver me into your presence forever. You will deliver me. The deliverance of the Lord leads to the presence of the Lord. And so for us as Christians, we know that to be oh so true because our Lord has been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the foundation upon which this promise stands. As the very breath that Christ breathes today, as the very surety of his reign as king, we will be delivered into the presence of our Lord. That is the rock and foundation upon this promise. Christ was raised, and so we too have and shall be raised with him, to him, forever. David's deliverance and our deliverance leads to the presence of the Lord. And finally, we see that David's deliverance ends with praise. Praise to the Lord. This psalm ends with a declaration of praise for the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of his people, of everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. It's a mark of every last psalm in every book of the Psalter. But that doesn't mean it's not part of the psalm. It's, instead, it's, just, it's put there because David's highlighting it. He's saying, oh, you're merciful, and I've got to tell everyone about it, and I've got to tell you how much I love you because of it. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Amen and amen. He is just overflowing with joy as he has seen, felt, and experienced the mercy of his God in his time of need. So friends, let us praise him. The Psalter is a songbook after all. Let us praise him. The truth this morning should be welling up in our hearts, a joy and a delight in our God. Look at who he is. His heart is not to push away, but to bring near those who are needy. That's who he is. Our God sought after us and tenderly called us home. He welcomed us when we were our weakest, our vilest, and most poor. His mercy is not simply to be received, but to be celebrated. It's to be celebrated. Our hearts should soar and our voices should proclaim how wondrous his mercy is is. When we sing, let's, let's sing as if we have tasted the sweetness of this mercy that very moment. Let's boldly and wholeheartedly sing of how amazing, how beautiful, how wonderful, how merciful our God is. It's what David ends with here. So, brothers and sisters, friends, Go this week, go into the world, go into your jobs, go into your families, and don't hide your weakness. Don't be ashamed of weakness, but find peace and comfort in knowing 
that when we are weak, broken, and in fear, we're met by our God who welcomes us, heals us, and draws us near. Let us pray. O merciful God, Father of all mercies and comforts, this morning we have seen a a glimpse, we have tasted a drop of your goodness. We have seen how your promises to those who are needy, poor, and weak are unshakable. We see that they are found ultimately in the one who walked through the same weakness we walk through, who can identify with our weakness, and who says, come to me, and I will carry you all the way home. Father, may these truths exalt our Savior. May they give us a, t- a, a glimpse into his, his beauty and his love for his people, his sacrifice, and the mercy he offers. And may that invite our hearts now and every day to come to him, to praise him, and to love him. For he is the mercy of God. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.